today on Ag News Daily. When they're neglected for three or four years, you have bad trellises. You have the vines themselves have uh, not been sprayed, so you're fighting disease and, and things like that. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. This is Madison Honkamp here with the Ag News Daily Podcast, and I am joined by Mike Pearson and Delaney Howell. And how are you guys doing today? I am fantastic. I, I could be a little better. I don't know if I mentioned this on the podcast, but the blower has gone out on my air conditioning unit. Uh-oh. <laughs> yes. And today, of course, we are in a heat uh, hmm. uh, advisory, advisory or warning. Yeah. Ma- yeah, advisory. And it is very, very warm in my house today. And I'm trying to do some cleaning. You know, we got it listed on the market now. And I am definitely doing the podcast shirtless. So you're welcome, <laughs> listeners. Oh my gosh, seriously, you, have, you literally have like the worst luck. Like your truck breaks, your car breaks, your phone breaks, your AC breaks, your tractor breaks, the cows get out. <laughs> Wasn't for bad luck Delaney Howell, I'd have no luck at all. Mm, that's probably true. That's a, that's I a good saying. I like that. Yeah, yeah. So anyways, that's my day. I'm just sweating profusely while sitting still on the couch. What are you up to, Delaney? I am preparing for my trip. I'm heading to Washington, D.C. next week to talk to quite a few legislators about what's going on in D.C. and related to rural America. So I'll be doing a sit-down with Secretary Perdue, Administrator Wheeler, and then some folks from Congress. So just preparing for that. Fun stuff, fun stuff. We can expect some D.C. content next week from you. Well, you can expect some commentary from me, that's for sure sitting down with Secretary Purdue on Monday. It'd be super great if he had something to share about the market facilitation program. That would be. That would be really, really nice. It'd be good to get some answers out there to our producer listeners. Yes, it would. Well, Madison Honkamp, what is new at the Madison County Fair? Well, it's hot. Um, (laughs) They had to cancel livestock judging tonight so that we didn't stress any animals out too much for shows. Um, but I do have some good news. My brother, his doe that we um, rate, like we bred and everything this year, got fourth overall. So he was pretty happy about that. Fantastic. That is very yeah. cool. Yeah. Outstanding. Well, that is a good fair update mm-hmm. for our listeners today. <laughs> it's Madison County, Iowa. Is of course what we we're talking about, the home of John Wayne and the Red Delicious Apple. But and Delaney, the cover bridges. And the cover bridges, exactly right. Yes, bridges of Madison County, of course. And of course, home to both Madison and myself. And John Wayne. Yeah, I said that. That was it's our main claim to fame, Delaney. Oh, okay. Way to pay attention. It's kind of Glad one you of tuned our in. <laughs> <laughs> well, Delaney, since yes. you're not paying attention, why don't you tell attention. us what kind of news is going on? It is a little bit of a slower news day today. The swamp in D.C. is hot, so maybe there are just not a lot of things moving and shaking out there. But we are still seeing some stuff moving and shaking on the trade front. We've got a slow deal working in place with Japan right now. They are really waiting, it sounds like, until after they have their upper house elections, which is happening this Sunday, which I think is strange that they're holding an election on a Sunday. But whatever, that's how the Japanese apparently do it over there waiting for that to get shaken out until they really move full speed ahead. But it really sounds like a lot of people are very excited about the progress that they're having. And a couple of Japanese officials even shared with some reporters that they are excited. They were enthused when President Trump came to Japan at the end of May. 
talking about doing a deal as soon as possible, and they are, said that they are working full steam ahead. So we really might have a deal in place sooner rather than later with the Japanese. Well, there we go. I uh, I think that is interesting because I've got an update from the NPPC, the National mm. Pork Producers Council, and um, they had their president, David Herring, who's from North Carolina, testified this morning before the House Ag Subcommittee. And one of the things he talked about was that we really need to see an expedited negotiation of a trade agreement with Japan because U.S. pork producers are losing market share due to uh, the new trade agreements, namely uh, the TPP or whatever it was rebranded as after we backed out, and the European Union. So he would certainly like to see this thing get pushed through as quickly as possible. You know, we really haven't heard much about where things sit between the European Union and the U.S., no, that one I think is kind of on the back burner mm -hmm. now for a little while, um, but I'm not sure why. I am not sure why either. Maybe because some of the efforts are being taken away to negotiate USMCA finalized that and Japan now and of course China. It seems like in some updates I read today, President Trump and President Xi are struggling on a way to, to move forward, to find a path forward in trade talks. They're at odds on whether or not they should pick up where they left off back in May before things kind of went south. And they also apparently have different views on what was promised in Osaka, which I think was made pretty clear when President Trump said the Chinese were going to step in and buy lots of ag products. China did not confirm that. So we're kind of at a standstill, it sounds like, right now. But Lighthizer did say that if things go well later this week on a phone call with Chinese officials. He might be heading to Beijing here in the next week or two. Yes. So that phone call is happening this afternoon, and uh, Steve Mnuchin will be on it, along with Dr. Robert Lighthizer, and they're talking to their partners over in China. And uh, Mnuchin said he was asked if this phone call would lead to more in-person meetings. And he said, I am not going to speculate, but it's possible. And then China's former ambassador to Iceland, and I guess the former president of the China Institute of International Studies, which is a think tank tied in with Chinese, uh, the Chinese uh, foreign ministry, said he does expect more formal discussions to resume at the end of this month. So, yeah, like you say, Delaney, the next week or two, we could see, you know, either U.S. folks going over there or the Chinese heading back over here. I'm sure that's going to be one of those things that will be a uh, heated discussion mm. as uh, we figure out how this trade deal, potential trade deal, could move forward. Yes, I think you are correct. Madison, what is jumping out at you for news for today? Well, I don't have any news about trade, but I do have some just kind of U.S. news. Um, so the USDA is kind of under fire for the GIPSA rules, or yeah, GIPSA rules. Um, so a letter was sent to under USDA under Secretary Greg Ibach, um, urging him to ensure that many new rules proposed under the Packers and Stockyards Act prioritize supporting the needs of small independent cattle ranchers, hog farmers, and contract poultry growers. Um, they were having a lot of issues with this, and they really just want to make this act better for farmers, especially those small independent operations. So this is definitely something keep, to keep our eye on. And hopefully, uh, maybe Purdue will comment and kind of see 
what will happen because this is a little bit of a legal challenge um, because they do have to scrap the rule that Obama did or Obama administration did put in place. So we'll kind of see how this plays out. Okay. All right. Yeah. Gypsies, you know, it's been one of those things that has been a topic of conversation mm-hmm. for several years and it would be nice to see something final uh, come out that could provide some additional certainty under the, uh, the GYPSA regulations. Yes, definitely. Well, I've got some uh, some pretty good news to come out of the USDA earlier today. They issued a press release that announced $16 million of available funding to help socially disadvantaged and veteran farmers and ranchers and own and operate successful farms. Uh, this come, uh, money is coming through the USDA's outreach and assistance for socially disadvantaged, disadvantaged farmers and ranchers and veteran farmers and ranchers. Jeez, that is a... That is a government headline right there. Um, it's, it's known as the 2501 program, and uh, they say that this money is available uh, as of now. This is part of the 2018 Farm Bill, so we will see this funding continue yearly until fiscal year 2023, and the amounts will grow each year. So listeners, if you are a, a woman, a person of color, or a veteran, and you are interested in agriculture, give your FSA office a call. Uh, those loan advisors will be able to kind of point you in the right direction and, you know, take advantage of this money that's out there. The USDA wants to help bring more diversity into the world of agriculture and, you know, grab those dollars. Absolutely, Mike. Absolutely. Yeah. I just thought this was interesting. Since 1994, uh, the 2501 program has awarded 451 grants, totaling more than $103 million. Pretty good chunk of change, huh? Yeah. I mean, that, that's kind of how I interpret it. That seems that seems pretty sizable. And they're grants. Mm-hmm. So they can legitimately just jump right in, help the bottom line, you know, whatever it is you need on your operation. Get it. Get it yeah. done. Yeah, and it sounds like this year we could absolutely use that grant money, especially if you fit within those stipulations there, because of the Federal Reserve's latest beige book, which is a summary of economic conditions across the country. So far, the Chicago, Kansas City, Minneapolis, and St. Louis Feds, which of course represent a pretty good chunk of the Corn Belt, are reporting major problems in their regions in particular. The Kansas City Fed warned that the weather conditions may also reduce, of course, the quality of the crop. No surprise there. But the Dallas Fed noted that while some growers are benefiting from higher grain prices, those increases were negative for livestock producers and trade uncertainty is also weighing on producers. And overall, they're nervous about the future of the rural economy. And just to add to that, an analysis done by the American Farm Bureau Federation said, Based off of the crop conditions we've been seeing this year, this is the the worst crop conditions since 2012 for both corn and soybean acres. Yeah, you know, I don't think that's going to shock a lot of folks who have uh, driven around the countryside or have seen some of the more recent work done. I saw this on Twitter by our friends over at, um, oh, uh, I'm drawing a blank. Jeez, my brain is slowly giving away, but uh, BJ Split and company Mm. over there, uh, they did a great, great report getting up in the air to look at crop conditions, and it's fascinating. What you see when you don't just go by on the road, the amount of variability out there in the crop is incredible. It really is, Mike. It really is. I think the heat is starting to uh, have an impact on you. 
Oh, a hundred percent. That's what it is. It's because I'm sitting here just marinating <laughs> in my own juices. My brain isn't working. Oh my god, oh that creates really quite the image for all our listeners. Absolutely, you are welcome, yeah. folks. Mm-hmm. That one's on the house. The next one, I'm going to charge you. Great. <laughs> well, let's see. Are we all out of news for the day? Delaney, do you have anything else? That was my last piece of news. Madison, what about you? I just have one last thing. Um, the USDA, again, um, are tr- is going to be cr- revisiting their organic livestock rule later, hopefully later this year. Um a lot of the organic industry has been really frustrated with the USDA for scrapping an Obama administration proposal, and that rule would have closed the loophole allowing a one-time transition of a conventionally raised cow or entire herd into the National Organic Program if the animal or herd was treated under organic standards for a year. Um, and it, this administration obviously has kind of scrapped that rule, and there isn't I don't think there's really a solid, you know, organic definition um, that producers are meant to follow. So they are revisiting that and hopefully can't they can work to quickly draft a new rule to kind of fix that verbiage and see where that takes us. So the issue is there's just not enough clarity as to yeah. what constitutes organic when you're making the transition from conventional to organic on the livestock side. Yes, definitely. Ah. And the Organic Trade Association did comment and they really don't want that, you know, organic seal to not have um oh what's the word? It's oh meaning like yeah. Like they don't want it to just be a seal. They want it to actually mean that it is or like truly organic. Mm. Okay. All right. Well, keep following that one, uh, yep. uh, Madison, and let us know how this thing goes. I will. Well, and I suppose we should jump into the market. And sadly, the only place it went today was down. Delaney, what do you say? Should we see where prices were wrapped up for the day? Well, let's rip the Band-Aid off. All right, folks. And uh, remember, our markets are brought to us by our great friends at the Zaner Group. I'm proud to be a part of that team as of the first. So if you'd like to get in touch with us, learn to manage your marketing risk, give us a call at 312-277-0050 or visit us on the web at Zaner, Z-A-N-E-R.com. And tell us you heard it on Ag News Daily. As I mentioned, the bears were in control. Tough day for producers. Great day for end users. Looking at the corn market, September contract down 11.5 cents at 4.24 and a half. December down 11 and three quarters. Finished at 4.29 and three quarters. In soybeans, the August was down one and a quarter cents at 8.81 and a quarter. November new crop down one and a half cents. Finished the day at 8.99 even. And Chicago wheat, September down 12 cents. Finished 4.93 and a half. December also down 12, closed the day at 5.05 and a quarter. Jumping over to the world of livestock again, pretty well read all down the screen. August live cattle off 72.5 cents at 107.40. The October down 50 cents, finished the day at 108.25. Despite weakness in the corn market, feeder cattle just could not catch a bid. The August contract was down a dollar fifteen today at one thirty nine forty two fifty. The September down a dollar thirty, closed at one thirty nine forty seven fifty. 
Split trade in lean hogs with the August up 77.5 cents at 82.77.50. The October down 92.5, finished the day at 76.90. The only market to see really substantial gains today is Class 3 milk. July contract up 11 cents at 17.42, and the August up 2, closed the day at 17.69. Delaney, why don't you tell us who we'll be talking to for today's interview? I will do that, Mike. But right after we hear today's Hot Rod Farmer Minute with our podcaster, fellow podcaster, Ray Bohax of the Idle Chatter podcast. Welcome to the Hot Rod Farmer Minute. I'm Ray Bohax from the Farm Machinery Digest website and the Idle Chatter podcast found on the Global Ag Network. Biodiesel's roots grow deep in the soil of American farms, yet there's a great deal of misinformation. The amount of biodiesel in fuel is identified alphanumerically, a letter and then a number. B100 is pure biodiesel. B20 is a blend of 20% biodiesel and 80% petroleum-based diesel. Biodiesel is manufactured instead of refined. The majority of biodiesel is made from soybeans, but it can be made from other grain stocks, oils, or fats. The soybean is crushed and yields approximately 80% high-protein meal and 20% oil that is used for biodiesel. Soybean-based biodiesel is also very efficient. It returns 5.5 units of energy for every one unit of energy consumed. Biodiesel has a number of advantages over conventional fuel. It has high lubricity, even in blends with as little as 2%, a high cetane rating. B100 is a minimum of 50 cetane, compared to the national average of 40 cetane for conventional fuel, and it also offers a reduction in emissions. On newer EPA tier-rated engines, biodiesel provides more efficient conversion of pollutants in exhaust system-based controls. Biodiesel has a natural cleaning action and will remove gunk and varnish from fuel storage facilities, equipment fuel tanks, and the engine's fuel system. When switching to biodiesel, it is best to change all fuel filters, engine and storage tank, and then again at one-half the normal interval. Follow this for two filter changes, then a normal routine can be employed. B20 will cloud and gel at temperatures 10 degrees Fahrenheit warmer than number 2 petroleum diesel. B100 will gel even sooner. Traditional cold performance additives work just as effectively in biodiesel. Biodiesel is good for your farm, your engine in America. Use it with pride and confidence. Well, do be sure and check out the Idle Chatter podcast, part of Global Ag Network. If you've got other questions, Ray always covers some great stuff. Mike, maybe you would even get some tips there on how to fix your own air conditioning. You know, if it were in the tractor, I know Ray could get me sorted out. But sadly, (laughs) I think this one's just going to require me writing a check. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about today's interview before we get, get it turned over here. I had a conversation with John Barber, who is a local Iowa winery and vineyard owner just north of Des Moines, Iowa, south of Ames. And he owns the cellar at White Oak. So let's turn it over to John. Well, 
viticulture and wineries and vineyards isn't something that we think of often in agriculture, but it's still a part of agriculture. And to discuss that today, I've got with me John Barber, who is the owner of The Cellar at White Oak. It's a local Iowa winery just outside of the Des Moines area, just north of Des Moines. John, tell me a little bit about the story of The Cellar and how you went from working a career in engineering to now owning a winery. Well, as you kind of move through life and you get into your 50s, you start looking for towards the future of what you're going to do with the rest of your life. And I had been in the engineering business for 38 years, so I was almost truly ready for a, uh, a switch and something with a little more passion behind it. My wife and I enjoyed, you know, doing, we have an acreage and, and all the work that goes behind that. We've had a vineyard out there since 2012. One thing led to another. We started making wine. We took on a couple other vineyards, and it got to the point where we just couldn't work for a living anymore, and had to had to kind of jump over to this this side of life. And it has been a blast. It's a lot more work than we expected, but we are just um, meeting all new friends and and uh, keeping fit and trim out there, working in the ninety degree weather like today. So, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean. Vit, vit, viticulture and vineyard management, canopy management is a lot of hand labor. It's a lot more labor intensive than a lot of other maybe sectors of agriculture. Did you grow up on a farm? Did you anticipate the work that this was going to be ahead of time? No, I actually grew up in Detroit and moved here in 1979. But my wife's, my former wife, uh, her family had a farm down in Madison County. And I just fell in love with agriculture and what it had to offer, and just the, the the whole culture of it is is really cool. And I love Iowa. Um, the canopy management and all those kinds of things, you know, it's it's where you focus your efforts. We really got involved with the Iowa Wine Growers Association, which in turn got us involved with the Extension Services, which in turn got us involved with the Wine Institute up at Iowa State. And we've really learned a lot of things. And, and, um, and it is a lot of hands-on work. We'll put, I can't even tell you how many hours uh, into these vineyards every single year. But it's a labor of love. You know, it's a lifestyle. It's not a job anymore. You just, you're up from six o'clock in the morning and you get home at 10 o'clock at night after a wine tasting and you get to see a lot of live music and just have a blast but um we've been pretty lucky with the way things have worked out where our house is located where this winery is and being just north of des moines really close to ames it's had so many advantages that um this is the perfect location it really is drawing in a lot of agritourism folks or people interested in that type of agritourism. Going back a little bit though to the vineyard itself, tell me about the process of starting a vine when, because it takes four, five, six years to get a vine at full production where they're producing grapes that you can use for wine. Is that right? Yeah, about three, four years really is what it takes to do it. And we, we've only created one brand new vineyard and that is at our acreage over east of Elkhart a little bit. And that is, it's really nice when you can do that because you can pick the cultivars that you think are going to be the most, um, the, the ones that people will enjoy the most as far as making good wines and stuff. And so many of these are fairly new that have been created at the University of Minnesota. 
Um, taking over existing vineyards, that's a way tougher deal. Um, these, when they're neglected for three or four years, you have bad trellis system. You have the vines themselves have uh, not been sprayed, so you're fighting disease and, and things like that. It's taken us every bit of four years to get our vineyards here at White Oak uh, Vineyard um, Number Four up to full production again. And uh, I would rather start fresh if I could. That's way easier. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You mentioned there a verbiage that maybe some folks outside of the vine industry wouldn't know, and that's a trellis. Can you explain the growth or how vines actually grow on the trellis system? Yeah, we use the high wire system here, and that's pretty prevalent in Iowa. There are several people that use VSP, which is the, the our wire is basically five and a half feet above the ground. It's supported by a, um, end assemblies, and in the middle there's just intermediate posts about every 20 feet through, through the vineyard. We use steel because we like the longevity of it and all. And the high wire system is geared more towards potential mechanical harvesting. That's where uh, inevitably we would like to see ourselves having a mechanical harvester someday. Um, the VSP system is a vertical separation where you are you have a lower cordon with spurs going high, and you tuck the tuck the branches within the. Um, the wire and it's a lot more labor it, it has its advantages and so forth but um, we like the high wire system much better here but um, replacing uh, an existing trellis is a tough deal too because you've got plants and everything and and working around that and re-tying and pulling up everything we've totally replaced the tre trellis system here at, at white oak so that's a lot of work. <laughs> it was a lot of work. That was our first years in business. We didn't have any wine to tend to or anything. So Josh Ellenberg, our winemaker, um, who's also my son-in-law, uh, we worked pretty tough that year. Lost a lot of weight out in the vineyard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, working outside is a good weight loss plan, if nothing else. <laughs> it's awesome. I've done it all my life. I love working outdoors. So. so you mentioned that you're looking at maybe potentially switching to a mechanical harvester or a system that would just do some of that that grunt work, yes. so to speak, for you. At what point do you need as far as size, acreage-wise, do you feel like you can justify moving to that mechanical equipment? I think you could do it at just about, uh, you know, when you, when you have a couple acres of vineyard, what it gives you is speed. Uh, you're able to harvest the grapes when they are absolutely ready and you can get them out in a matter of a couple hours versus, you know, an all-day venture. It, it takes us probably 10 hours with about 18 people to harvest uh, the small vineyard here at the winery. Uh, it's about... Um, a thousand plants or so, acre and a half. Um, the, the, the mechanical harvesting is just, it doesn't really do that much of a better job. I've heard people where they harvest a, a cultivar called Edelweiss and by the time it's harvested mechanically, it's mush in a bin. So you kind of, you have to glean through your vineyards a little bit, kind of clean some things out because you'll get bird nests, you'll get snakes, you'll get whatever mm. happens to be up in the yeah. canopy. But the speed factor is really worth it. And then you, 
you get the fruit at its maximum potential, you know, when you feel like it's your harvest. Otherwise, you're depending on a lot of volunteer labor or a lot of vineyards do, and they might not be able to get to it for the week till the weekend. You're ready on Tuesday, so you're waiting those four extra days. You may get some rain in between. It changes the, the profile of the grapes. When, when the grapes are ready, they'll take on water. They'll split. you got all kinds of issues with that. So the, the harvesters come in three or four people and boom, you're done. And there's probably, I I think there's like seven harvesters running around Iowa right now. And it will be a custom situation where we would hire that done. We would probably not purchase a harvester unless something crazy happens (laughs) in the next few years. But Which would uh, be a good problem to have. Yeah, that would be a good problem <laughs> to have. Where well, we would be producing all of our grapes. Um, right now, we, we do a, a fairly small percentage of it. We got into this. We let a couple of vineyards that we were managing go because we had to focus on getting this thing up and running and mm-hmm. get it off the ground. And it's not just, you know, agritourism is more than just walking around a vineyard all day. We've got to prepare the wines. We've got to have events to draw people out here. We've done things like planted pollinator fields and things just to talk about, you know, agriculture here in Iowa and and the importance of it. So, Yeah, that's awesome. I love that. So tell me a little bit then about the wine side of things, because that's also a science in itself. How do you go about creating wines that are suitable for the Iowa palate? Well, you know, that's, that's a good question because a lot of people have this perception of Iowa wine being sweet. That is um, somewhat of a choice that winemakers uh, tend to lean towards for some reason because of the high acidity in the wines here in the cold climate area. We chose, because we're outside the Des Moines area, outside of Ames, we have a lot of population to work off. Our demographic is a lot different, a lot of younger people and so forth. So we've kind of focused on drier styles. And um, we also do... We also like to keep the cult of our names on the wines. It's an education process. Instead of calling something, you know, uh, Buffalo Ridge or whatever because it sounds cool, we like to keep Frontenac as Frontenac. I don't have to create a new name for it. I want people to understand what the Frontenac vine is or Marquette or La Crescent. Um, And we differentiate our wines by batch identification numbers. Um, so you know whether you're having a sweet version or a dry version. We do make sweet wines here, but we really focus on the drier styles because I think in the near future you're going to see these cold climate varieties across the nation, not just here in Iowa, um, blossom and people are going to start to trend towards them because of the acid content, the ability to make some really great sparkling wines out of these. Um, it's going to be exciting. We're at the beginning. We're not at the end at all. We're not even at the middle yet. (laughs) And you've raised a couple of good points here about Iowa wines. People think Iowa wines are sweet. People don't usually associate Iowa as being a winery state. I mean, you look at California, obviously Napa Valley there brings in a lot of attention to the wines. But when you look at Iowa and the Midwest, what is the science behind making wine in this area? I mean, you mentioned some things there with the grapes. It sounds like there's a lot of research being done to make the Midwest also in a wine area. There, there are. The University of Minnesota is doing a great job um, establishing new cultivars and so forth. A, a good friend of ours, Drew Horton, works at the university up there, and he's making wine um, 
vine by vine in all these different cultivars trying to find the perfect ones and it really has changed the industry a lot we used to it used to be a lot of riparia or vitus riparia where that predominantly sweet has a labrusca kind of like grapiness about them where these new cultivars are way more delicate and their parentage is like Pinot Noir or Landot or you know whatever so they're they're way more complex and it's just changing the industry and people when they discover them they're just surprised as can be uh, we were in Ames last night they had a really nice uh, uh, show up there uh, and people were just flocking over to us and really were interested in our Vintners Reserve, which is a Frontenac Petite Pearl blend. And guys like Tom Plockert who are making Petite Pearl uh, up in Wisconsin and doing a great job. And I can't say enough good things about them. So those, that's our future. That's, that's where it's all coming from. I think a California winemaker would come here and be very confused at what's coming out of our fields. They're not the same. <laughs> uh, we're high acid, low pH. They're just the opposite of that. And they wouldn't know how to, they really would be confused at how to deal with these. But we've got, we're learning a lot. We have a lot of workshops. We have an apprenticeship program in Iowa. It's the first one in the nation to have a wine apprenticeship program that's, uh, sponsored by the department u.s department of labor um, we're certified with them and uh, we've got like nine apprentices i think in the state now and that surprises people it surprised me i can't of all places to have an apprenticeship program in wine iowa you know but that's cool it Very is really cool. Cool. we're a pretty progressive state yeah. more so than people think and we don't grow potatoes <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's idaho <laughs> And John, before I let you go, tell folks how they can find out more about your wine or your wineries and where they can find you. Well, whiteoakseller.com, Facebook, drive down I-35 and you'll see our signs just north of Ankeny. Come on in. We uh, really like to spend time with people. We like to be that little boutique winery that uh, will educate you and show you a good time and some fine wines too. Well, again, a big thank you there to John. And if you live in the Des Moines area or are close by, I encourage you to check out some of their wines. I personally have sampled quite a few, if not all of them, and uh, they do a pretty good job there. All right, Delaney. Glad you're out there doing some quality control. <laughs> yeah, you know, if I'm going to go out there and do an interview, I might as well sample the product. you got to support their business. You bet. You bet. That's, that's why I love going to feed yards. Just cut me off a big old ribeye and take it home, you know, sample. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I tell you what, if listeners want to sample the podcast, they can do that by going to uh, agnewsdaily.com, and that'll take us to our home at the Global Ag Network, or they can visit us on the web. Madison, where can they go to do that? Well, they can always find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Ag News Daily, or even at Global Ag Network and interact with not only us, but other podcasters as well. Fantastic. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go. Let's go.